my name is Julie Turney, and this is the HR Sound Off Podcast Show, the show created for HR and business professionals to discuss pertinent topics and trends as it relates to our professions. We're going to have amazing conversations with HR professionals from all over the world, get to learn their origin stories. How did they get into this profession? What do they love about being here? And how they want to set the record straight on that one misconception that really drives them crazy about our profession. Are you ready? I'm ready. Then let's sound off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the HR Sound Off podcast show. My name is Julie Turney, and I am your host. Today, I have the honor, the distinct privilege of being here with the amazing speaker, extraordinaire, trainer, author, mentor, coach, guide, Joan Underwood. How are you today? I'm doing just great. Thank you for asking and thank you for inviting me to be with you. You are very welcome, Joan. I know that we are operating under some challenges today, but we're going to get through this. I promise you that. So why don't we start, Joan, with you telling everyone who is Joan Underwood? What is your story? How did you get here? (laughs) Well, my story has many a winding path. So I am Joan Underwood, born in Antigua and Barbuda to a Dominican mother and a Monstration father. So I'm first generation Antiguan and Barbudan along with my siblings. I spent, you know, the first 17 years of my life in Antigua and Barbuda before going off to university in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I went to St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That was my first time, you know, being that far away from home. Mm -hmm. Uh, Previously, I had essentially just traveled within the region. And um, it, uh, it, yeah, it wasn't for me. So I did my four years and I remember when I was leaving saying, if I never see this place again, that will be okay for me. And it did take me, I mean, decades before I went back. The next time I went back to Halifax was like 2013. And that was, I left in 1984. Yeah. So I really, you know, was determined. Okay. That, that did work for me. The cold wasn't for me at all. And so anyway, I did a a bachelor's degree, went home and my first career actually, and I don't even know if you know this, Julie, even though you've known me for quite some time now, Mm -hmm. my first career was actually in laboratory medicine. No, I never knew that about you. Yeah. uh, yeah, Learn something new every day. (laughs) You're too young. So that, because this was like in the mid eighties. Okay. Yeah. So I, for seven and a half years, I worked then the Hoverton hospital. I was working as a technician. It occurred to me, what I perceived back then is that there was a lack of planning. There was inadequate policy mm-hmm. and strategic orientation in terms mm-hmm. of how things were done. And okay. I'll share how it manifested because it's instructive for us in HR in terms of thinking strategically and planning, not just for today, but planning for the longer term horizon. Absolutely. So 
I had promoted um, in my role as head of the Department of Anatomical Pathology, um, increased pap smears in our community clinics and also mm. in the private doctor's offices because we were seeing a lot of women coming in with invasive, invasive cervical cancer. Mm. And cervical cancer is something that can be prevented. Right. And so we went on a very aggressive public health education campaign and we encourage women to come in and get their pap smears done and we increased the number of smears exponentially mm -hmm. and then it went south because management wasn't keeping up with us uh -huh. so we were running out of reagents so the women were coming in and then we couldn't process uh -huh. their sample and it's not as if they didn't know we were doing this public education campaign. It's not as if they didn't know that we were projecting the increased volume, but they didn't put the systems in place to accommodate it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know what? I need to go and do a master's degree in health services administration. And so mm -hmm. I did that. And I went off to the George Washington University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Right. And... But the, and another wow. story here in terms of, you know, being confident about the choices that you make, even if you can't map out the entire journey. Mm -hmm. They said to me, oh, it's not your turn yet. There are people senior to you in the system. Mm -hmm. So you have to wait until it's your turn to get an opportunity to go and study. Just made no sense. And Hopkins training facility in this area in the world not in the u.s in the world yeah they take four students every year four students uh, i was one of one you're telling me it's not yeah, your turn to get studies so you can't go wow i got a complete scholarship to pay oh. for everything mm -hmm. and you're telling me that i should say no to that because it's not my turn yet mm. and so i resigned and it was a one-letter one line letter of resignation, I hereby resigned with immediate effect. Yeah. And I packed my bags and I left. Wow. So technically I was unemployed. Yeah. So, but I'm like, I'll deal with that when the time comes. Mm -hmm. Right now, I have a year to complete this course and to excel at it. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm going to focus my energy. And, yeah. you know, God is good because I went off and I did my studies. And by the time I came back with my master's, a community hospital was then looking for an administrator. So I didn't uh -huh. go back into the government system. I went into the private sector to uh -huh. manage a community hospital. Right. So that was my second career then. Mm. So I'm now in health services management and policy. Yeah. And again, to encourage folks, even though things don't go exactly as you plan them to, be prepared. Um, my brother who coaches soccer had, you know, an under 12 soccer player said to him, because he said to the kid who was on the sidelines, say his name is Jimmy. Right. Jimmy, get ready. I'm going to put you in. And the child says, coach, I am ready. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Mm -hmm. And the wisdom coming out of that child, because that's something that is so profound. Yeah, absolutely. And so just stay in a state of readiness, readiness. for the opportunities that will come your mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I transitioned from the healthcare sector completely and mm -hmm. into general management. So this would have happened around 2000. I did my MBA 
general management. I became the general manager for a private company and then was hired away from that company to design and implement a tourism-related project. Wow. And when I had finished running that project for a year, they said to me, we have another project for you. We'd like you to come on board and start an HR department for us. Wow. No, at that time, I had less than zero interest in HR. Okay. Never, I was a generalist, yeah. right? But again, the option was being unemployed or taking this gig. Uh-huh. So I negotiated with the managing director. I said, here's what. You tell me what it is that you want to accomplish, and I'll see if I can do that for you. Mm-hmm. And he laid out what he wanted this new HR department to achieve. Because at the time, they had a personnel department, which was, you know, real old school, you know, tracking attendance, running payroll. Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to do that as much as I wanted to stick needles in my eyes. Right? So <laughs> I said to him, That was very graphic. I, I actually visualized that. <laughs> I said to him, look, I can do what you need to have done, but I have a request of my own. I said, first off, I don't want to just do HR. So my first request is that you make it HR and strategic development. Mm -hmm. And that's instructive because you see this thing about getting a seat at the table, my very first HR gig I already had a seat at the table and I only accepted it because that was a guaranteed part of the job um, profile. Right. Right. So, because I just can't imagine doing it any other way. And there's a lesson in that too, about being able to negotiate your role because organizations don't know what they want until you put before them what is possible. Yeah. So I love that. Very courageous of you. Well, the thing is, it was a risk, and that's another powerful lesson there for us. Yeah. Um, and I, I, in my training and with my coaching clients, there's a saying, um, sometimes you have to be like the turtle. Yeah. He makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. Mm. All right? Mm. So if you're going to keep your neck withdrawn into the shell, yep. prepared to stay where you, be prepared to stay where you are. Wow. If you're willing to take some risks, then you can really make some progress. And so I negotiated that it would be HR and strategic development. I negotiated that they would give me the latitude to make some harsh, unpopular decisions, Mm -hmm. but that I would not abuse that concession. Mm -hmm. I would be very careful and you know, I, I would not um, lead them down a road that would cause advances. Yeah. But I also said to him, the culture needs to change. And sometimes we have to pay to make your problems go away. So I say, so I may have some terminations that mm-hmm. I need you to back me with. And I need to know that you're not going to balk when that time comes, because this was an organization. No one ever got fired. Right. You, if someone, you know, no, insubordinate, they would just transfer them because it was a conglomerate. They had multiple companies. They would just move them around. And I said, we got to break the back of that. Yes. Right? Because it sends a terrible message yeah. to your high performers as well as to the 
the slackers. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to have a public slaying or two. Uh-huh. And I need you to back me with that. And this is negotiated all up front. Now that's an interesting one, Joan. I gotta stop you there a second. Because I think this is um this is the this is something that's not very popular, right? Where you talk about having to make some slings. And that, that's a decision that you were able to make because that's not something that's normal in HR. No. So, so what, what made you make that particular decision? Was that because you had the, the general manager mentality, the mentality of being able to manage? Now, for us as HR, we don't have that. And a lot of times we may not even have that, that license, right, to make that decision. So what is your advice? Well, first of all, you have to be at the top of your game. So you have to have the credibility because you're good at what you do. You do. Yeah. You have to know your legal and regulatory framework inside out. You have to know your profession inside out. So you can't be using outdated concepts. You have to be on the cutting edge yeah. so that when you're advising the, the people around the table, yeah. that you show up in a way that's fully informed. You absolutely have to understand the business model because I was able to talk to them in terms of this is how this is impacting your bottom line. Yeah. Right? You have to be able to read financial. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I had an MBA. I had been a GM. Um, I had sat on boards. Mm-hmm. So I knew I knew how to prepare financials. I knew how to read and interpret financials. And mm-hmm. I knew how to have a conversation about financials. Yes. If you don't have that, you know, as part Muscle, of your, yeah. your skill set, as part of your competencies, your credibility drops because yeah. then the finance people suck up the air in the room. The marketing people suck because they yes. know how to have those because conversations. They know. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can't expect folks to lower the bar to make you comfortable. Right. You have to step your game up. So that's something that I would say to HR practitioners. Um, Don't expect anyone to just give you a seat at the table because you're a nice person or because HR just should be there. You got to earn it. And then when you get there, deliver consistently. Yeah. When you get there, don't freeze. And, you know, it can happen, mm-hmm. but don't make it a pattern. Yeah. Your comeback has to be amazing. Yes. Right? So you are going to go through a learning curve, right? But ensure that every time you show up, you show up better than you did the last time. I, I had one experience where the financial controller in that same conglomerate said to me, um, and I, I don't know that it was intended as a compliment, but I chose to take it that way. And she was okay. like, the board always goes easy on you. Everything you ask them for, you get. And I said, they're not going easy on me. Before I ask them for anything, I do my homework mm-hmm. and I show them that it's in their best interest to go the route that I'm recommending. Lending. And then tell them to hold me accountable if I don't deliver. Yes. Accountability is everything, huh? It's huge. It yes. really is. It really is. So continue your, your journey. You were telling us. Now you're leading an organization. You have your seat at the table, but how did you get here? Because you're not there. 
Yes, indeed. But I want to touch on accountability because you picked yes. up on that. Yes. And it's, I mean, I'm really passionate about accountability. Yeah. And I want to say that the same way I negotiated a seat at the table for my very first HR role, mm -hmm. my concession in order to secure that seat, and I said to him, if I don't deliver the three things that you've asked me to do within three years, you won't have to fire me. I'll leave on my own. Mm. Right? Yeah. So I didn't wait for him to express any reservations about it. I was the one. Because he was offering me a permanent job. I said, no, I won't take a permanent job. I've said to you, I can do this in three years. I'll take a three-year contract. And if I don't deliver, I'll leave. You won't yeah. have to ask me to leave. Yeah. Okay. I ended up being there for, gosh, I think it was about nine years. <laughs> All right. So I was waiting for out. the ridiculousness. <laughs> <laughs> so you delivered and then some. And my well, the third thing that I had negotiated is that after the three years, because remember, I wasn't a fan of HR. Yeah. After the three years, I had said, after three years, you'll take the HR away from me and I'll groom somebody to do it. Yeah. Right. And just leave me with strategic development. Ooh, I love that. Because that's, that's where I was. That's yeah. where my mindset was. Yeah. Well, after the three years, I didn't want to let go of HR. So <laughs> I it happens, it. right? I fell in love with it. I really fell in love with it. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. So. I did that for about nine years. Okay. And then another major shift because in 2009 is when I left that organization and I left it to join the office of the prime minister as his chief implementation officer. What? Now, big you left, shift. You left government, <laughs> went private, went back to yes. government went private and went back up to government again at the prime minister's office. Wow, Joan. Listen. And HR, anyway. HR had a role to play there. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, the prime minister at the time was uh, Winston Baldwin Spencer. And okay. PM Spencer, lifelong trade unionist. This was his second term in office and public sector transformation was big on his agenda. Mm -hmm. Now, as a trade unionist, he was absolutely resolved that he didn't want this to be managed by the finance people. Right. He wanted it to be managed by someone who would focus and on the people, people side of it. Mm, nice. And that right? was, so and here he, you are. he asked me to, by then I was known as an HR person. Yeah. And so he says, you know, I, I want you to come and be my advisor when it comes to public sector transformation. And the, the government at the time was also looking at a divestment program. And he was like, I don't want people to get lost in this. So it was because I had spent all that time in HR yeah. and I'd been the president of the Employers Federation. So the prime minister asked me to come and work full time with him. Right. And so that was another major shift. Mm -hmm. And again, HR was part of what I brought to the table yeah. as value added. It's sitting in the office of the prime minister. Now, just go back a little bit because my, um, this audience is an international audience. And so for those of us who don't know, like explain what the 
um, Employers Federation Council, what the Employers Federation, Confederation Council, sorry, does. Okay, so the Employers Federation is what is called in Antigua and Barbuda, similar names throughout the yeah. region. Yeah. It's like a trade union for employers. Mm -hmm. So this is the umbrella organization for, you know, primarily private sector entities. Yeah. So the Employers Federation will advise employers, we will lobby in terms of amendments to labor laws. Mm -hmm. um, we negotiate for the government policies to be, you know, favorable to yeah. um, industry and commerce, et cetera. Okay. We do a lot of training. Um, for the members of, of the organization, that type of thing, to help them take their HR policies and procedures to the next level. level. Got it. Thank you. Continue. <laughs> now, as you ask about the Employers um, Federation, you know, something that's interesting. And for as long as I've been an HR practitioner, there is a big gaping hole in my experience. Mm. And I'll tell you what it is. I have never operated in a unionized environment. So how never. are you interpreting that? I'll tell you why I think that's the case. What do you read into that? For me personally, I never operated in a unionized environment because I felt like people mattered and I wanted the opportunity to focus on um, synergizing people and leaders. And I always feel like the unions get in the way. It's almost like I remember some years ago, someone saying to me, you know, divorce, divorce lawyers are the worst lawyers because they help to add to the divisions. And then that's what makes divorces so messy. Mm. And that's why people recommend conciliation and having a mediator in between um, to help you sort things out. And I always felt like I never wanted anyone to impact the way I wanted to humanize the workplace. And that's why I never got involved with unions. And I, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably why you did too, unionize environments. Am I right? So clearly it wasn't my choice yeah. whether persons were unionized or not, because right. if, you know they have the right of exactly. association, right? The thing is when I set up the HR department in for this conglomerate, they weren't unionized at the time. And I told you how I went in there. I went in there with certain concessions up front that this is not transitional change, this is transformational change. Exactly. And because I had that mandate, I went after the best in class HR policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. And like you, I, Having been a GM, I already knew, listen, the way to make this entity successful is to treat the people right. Exactly. And so I wasn't waiting for someone to come from outside the organization to tell me what we needed to do exactly. to do right by our staff. Mm -hmm. So there was a point in time where there was some talk of unionization. And so what I did is I did um, some research. I looked at the benefits packages and general conditions of work because uh, it was in the financial services sector of the other financial institutions. Yeah. And what we found is that our benefits package was more attractive. The total benefits package. Yeah. Because we weren't necessarily paying the best salaries. But when we looked at what we had in terms of tuition reimbursement, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, insurance, health, um, 
and all, everything else, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said to the staff, you know, you absolutely have the right to unionize, okay? When that happens, I won't be the one negotiating for you anymore. You're going to give that responsibility to the union. Let me show you what I've done on your behalf since I've been in this role. Yeah. Let me show you what the other banks have, and then you can decide if you want to replace me as your primary advocate. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. opted to stay with what they had. Have. Right? So it's a it's a bit of a deficiency that I've yeah. never worked in a unionized environment. I I'm not complaining. <laughs> me either. Me either. <laughs> We're still here. We are still here. So where are you now? What is your current role? Um, and how are you feeling about that? Listen, right now, I cannot imagine being in a better place. Mm -hmm. I am at the point where I'm doing work that I love, work that feeds my soul. Yes. Um, I have a boutique consulting firm. And, uh, you know, thank God I have the ability to be able to say no to projects that don't feed my soul. So I only do things that I'm passionate about where I think I can make a difference and where it will impact the quality of lives positively. Yeah. So my firm is named after me. It's Underwood Talent Development Services. Nice. And one thing I have said, I don't do operational HR anymore. I, I, I've been I there, done that, and I think I've paid my dues. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, what <laughs> um, I, I, exactly. And I think where I operate in terms of the talent development sphere, mm -hmm. that I help to set the foundation for the operational things to happen. Yeah. So, I do a lot of work in leadership yeah. development. I still have a passion for strategic development. So, yeah. I do strategic HR. Yes, right? you do it. You do it well. I've been in your class already. Um, management and planning generally. Mm -hmm. I um, <laughs> Yes, you have. That's how we met, actually, with my doing that training at, at um, the Cavill School of Business. And so I, I am huge. I'm a master trainer, certified master trainer. I love leadership development programming. I... I'm at my happiest when I'm designing yeah. training intervention. And for me, so sometimes clients who don't quite understand how leadership development works, they may call and they say, oh, we need training yeah. for all our uh, managers. And I was like, okay, um, how do you know that? What gap is it that you're trying to fill? Oh. Or they're not performing to the level that we need them to um, yes but how do you know that that's due to a knowledge or skill gap yeah. it could be that they don't have the enabling environment that you know permits them to do the things they want to do so let's come in and do a diagnostic assessment and figure out what's going on what and then i design based on what we found with the diagnostic assessment yeah. And I've had clients say, oh, remember that program that you did for us a few years ago? Because I've done like, you know, leadership development programming for our entire management team. I love working with intact management teams. Yes. And they'll say, we want you to come back and do it again. And I was like, but how do you know it's the same thing that you need? Yeah. We've got to go through it. I mean, things have changed. People have changed. Yeah. 
We need to start from where we started last time. Yeah. Do the diagnostic assessment. I know you're pleased with the program we did before and you have new talents or you just want to put them through the same program. But these are different people with different needs maybe. Yeah. So let's do the diagnostic assessment. Trigger. And I think as consultants, as HR practitioners, we really do need to stand our ground with yes. that. Absolutely. It's too easy to just take stuff off the shelf uh, or have, you know, someone who's really popular or they're doing fantastic or getting rave reviews and say, oh, let's bring that here. How do you know it's what you what need? You need Exactly. It's funny that you said that, you know, because I was actually talking with a client today who was expressing the same thing, you know, that her leaders are asking for coaching. And I was like, but how do they know that they need coaching? Like, how do they know that that's exactly what they need? And what kind of coaching are they talking about? I'm like, I think you need to dig a little deeper and maybe understand what their leadership issues are um, and maybe do like a leadership risk, leadership impact kind of assessment to figure out where everybody's at. Then that will lend more to helping you figure out what they need to be coached on, you know? So I definitely agree with you. You have to figure out where, you have to meet people where they're at, but you got to know where they're at first. (laughs) Exactly. And then help them to get to where you need to be. And that's something else that I think that as HR practitioners, whether you're in the organization or you're coming in as a consultant, mm-hmm. um, you really need to show up and to the narrative in a way that is persuasive so that even though they may have started out thinking that they need to do this diagnostic assessment, that you impress upon them the importance of doing it this way. Because otherwise they could be spending their money and not getting the desired results. So a question that I always ask, who are the decision makers in this? And can we bring them into the process early? And then once they're around the table, my, my next question is, what would constitute success from your perspective? Yeah. And I want to hear that from everyone around the table because people may have different criteria for what constitutes success. Mm-hmm. We will return to my interview with Joan Underwood after these brief messages from our sponsor. Our sponsor for this podcast episode is Ability CBT. Ability CBT is an internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy program designed to provide effective mental health care to people dealing with a variety of concerns, including anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, and more. The program is guided by experienced therapists who are there to help you understand and navigate your mental health concerns and build long-lasting coping skills. Accessible from any device at any time, Ability CBT is delivered through a secure digital platform to combine the benefits of an in-person therapy with the convenience of virtual access for fast, easy, and effective support. Ability CBT also offers a targeted program to help address mental health concerns related to the uniquely challenging aspects of pandemics, including uncertainty, isolation, burnout, caring for family and community members, information overload, and stress management. Ability CBT can be accessed online at myicbt.com or by downloading the Ability CBT app from Google Play or the App Store. You deserve to feel better. We now return back to our interview with Joan Underwood. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. What a journey. 
what a life <laughs> you have lived already and such a huge model um, of what it is to be a female in leadership in the Caribbean especially um, but you are just you're such a powerhouse, Joan, and it's always a pleasure to, you know, like have a conversation with you and learn from you. Um, you're always full of great ideas and you're always willing to share your knowledge. And I think that that's one of the things that really drew me to you when I was looking for someone to guide, to learn, to learn from. So I really appreciate you for all that you've done, but you've done so much more. Now you are an author. So tell us about your book. What is the title of your book and uh, what is it about? Okay, so the title of my book is Manager's First Aid Kit, the transition from individual contributor or knowledge worker to people manager, yes. people leader mm -hmm. is fraught with difficulty. And unfortunately, the majority of folks who make that transition either fail outright or underperform in their first two years. The knowledge, skills, and abilities you need to succeed as a line staff, it's not the same that you need to succeed as a manager. And unfortunately, companies, employers do not prepare people before the promotion. No, they you do You kind not. of get promoted and you, for the yeah. most part, you have to figure it out yourself. Yes. And it's a very lonely experience. It is. You don't necessarily want to admit that you're struggling because after all, you were they just celebrated. You just got this promotion. Yes. I mean, some people may be envious of you, so you don't want to be vulnerable by admitting that, listen, I'm struggling here. Mm -hmm. So people go through and they learn by trial and error. Um, their morale takes a beating. And it, it's just unnecessarily traumatic. Yeah. And so in terms, you said how much I like sharing. I realized, listen, I can't coach everybody. And so that's why I committed to writing the book. Awesome. And where can we pick up this book? Of course, on Amazon. So if you, um, no matter where you are in the world, you could get the book on Amazon. It's also available on my website. And so my website is UTDS Inc. That's I-N-C. So utdsinc.com, and you can just look at my author tab. And there's some other books that I've written as well, which are available through my webpage. Nice. Uh, if you're in Antigua and Barbuda, it's available at the Methodist Bookshop and the books in Dominica. It's okay. available at a local bookshop and the same in Jamaica at Kingston um, Bookstore. Nice. So, you know. Lots of places where you can get it, and it's available in print form, electronic form, and on Audible. Audible, yes. Awesome. So proud of you, Joan. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure that a lot of managers and aspiring managers, are, or leaders, I should say, are going to benefit from these golden nuggets that you are sharing, which is based on your experience and also your knowledge and just being able to compact that into this one book so that people can benefit from it. We're very grateful. Will there be a book too? Oh, absolutely. As I said, I've already started writing. Um, so I've brought out a number of smaller books which expand on some of the areas in the book because, you know, as you know, having written the book yourself, yeah. you can't put everything into you one can't. book. You can't. So, you can. So I've been listening to the feedback and there's some specific areas that folks have said, we want more, more. on this. Nice. So thank you so much for sharing that, Joan. 
I am so looking forward to continuing to following your journey, um, you know, being a part of your community and learning more from you. So thank you so much. But tell us, what are you reading, watching, listening to right now that you think our audience would benefit from? Oh, my goodness. Right <laughs> now, I'm reading. I'm so excited about this book. Okay. Book, How okay. Women Rise. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it just came to my attention at the right moment. Okay. Because I'm very active on social media, specifically LinkedIn, Facebook, right. and Instagram. Right. And I did September Self-Improvement Month. And uh, I decided to devote all of my postings in September to helping people get unstuck. And yes. folks have just been lapping it up uh -huh. and they've been sharing stories with me. And there's a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety. They just feel that else to do. I, you know, I come in, I do my best. I'm not getting the recognition. I'm not getting the upward mobility and, you know, Maybe I should just give up. Yeah. And so focusing on getting unstuck, that, you know, that's what I was doing, researching all yeah. sorts of different strategies, drawing from my own life lessons, because there have been times in my career where I felt stuck myself. Yeah. And, you know, there's the book that preceded How Women Rise, What Got You Here Won't mm -hmm. Get You There. And so yeah. the, the behaviors, the mindsets that enable you to attain your current level of success, mm -hmm. you may need to leave some of those behind yeah. because where you're going requires a different set of competencies, a different yes. set of skills, yeah. right? Mindset and, too. and there's this um, beautiful chart that you see in the old management theory books. And it shows the balance of um, competencies required based on where you are in the organization. Mm -hmm. So as a supervisor, you rely more on your technical capabilities, mm -hmm. the people skills you have to have, because yes. every it's all yeah. about getting things done with and through other people. Yes. But that's where the focus is, technical and the human skills. When you go up to middle management, less technical still need the human skills, now you're starting to introduce more conceptual skills. And then when you get to the top level, not so much the technical stuff, because you have people who will do that, exactly. but the human skills and the conceptual strategic thinking skills, etc. Mm -hmm. right? But what happens is that we tend not to want to let go of of the focus on technical stuff because that's how we got here yeah. by being really good at the technical work. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But that's not what they're looking for in the C-suite. No, no. They want no. you to move above and beyond that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And so I decided, um, so the book came to my attention and I started reading it. And as I'm reading the book, it's exactly what I'm telling people in terms of how you're going to get unstuck. You have to change the mindset. You have to yeah. change behavior. You have to leave some habits behind. Right. And it's not that we're saying those are bad habits. We're saying they're no longer fit for purpose. purpose. What got you mm. here won't, won't get, you get you there. there. So, so preach it. <laughs> so that's one. The yeah. other thing that I, I, you know, I wish I could get the biggest soapbox in the world to talk about this is psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And I know you are huge, huge on 
Yes. Absolutely. With you, and the self-care and, yeah. you know, the things that go with that. Uh-huh. Listen, um, I think the pandemic has amplified the importance of psychological safety. Yes. And psychological safety is about people thinking that it's okay for me to be vulnerable. It's okay for me to take risks. It's okay for me to learn on the job. Mm-hmm. But if they're worried about security of tenure, if they're worried that they may be unemployed, if they make a mistake, if your culture says that we bury mistakes and the people who made them, yes. then you don't have psychological, psychological safety. safety at all. At all. And you know what? You know what else you lose when you lose psychological safety? Innovation, mm-hmm. creativity. Mm-hmm. All because all, that, all requires risk. Yep. that requires risk. That requires risk taking. So people stay in their comfort yep. zone. They're afraid to ask questions because they don't want to appear dumb. They're afraid to ask yep. questions because they don't want you to think that you're challenging, that they're yep. challenging it. Um, like I said, I'm looking for the biggest soapbox in the world to talk about psychological safety. Right. And, uh, you know, here's, here's so- part one. Here's part one <laughs> of your soapbox. And I'm going to give you part two of that soapbox when you speak at Disrupt HR. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Yes. And you know, it's going to be about something around psychological I know. I know. Because it. It, it just isn't getting enough attention. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I am so looking forward to to um to disrupt HR next year. Uh, amazing speakers. I'm looking forward to all the topics coming our way. So thank you so much for sharing that, Joan. Tell me what the this is the biggest question. What is the biggest misconception about our profession, HR, that really bothers you that you want to set the record straight on right here, right now? Actually, I'm going to surprise you, I think, with my answer here. Because I think too many HR practitioners fully understand and appreciate the magnitude of the role that we have. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and I'll go back to how I started my story that I started out by saying, I'm not going to do this unless... I'm, I have a seat at the table mm-hmm. because you cannot be making decisions about strategy and so on and then telling HR about it afterwards. Exactly. You need them there contributing to the decision-making yes. process in terms of the analysis, the projections, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're waiting for an invitation to the table rather than making a compelling case of why they need us at the table at better decisions are made there's better execution of decisions that are made and that there is monitoring evaluation and follow-up of those decisions so that's the misperception i think that too many hr practitioners do not understand the scope of the function and i think we need to fix that and especially in the caribbean because i think more and more i actually was reading a report recently that was um, produced by sage people and they were saying mm-hmm. that through the p- pandemic over the last 20 months, that the C-suite has recognized the strategic value in HR. However, there are still a few things that they have concerns about, which is they don't think HR is busy enough. Um, and they don't think that the usefulness after the pandemic will be sustainable. Well, nothing could ever be more untrue. But are we helping to create that perception? And that's what the report was on. 
the report was yes. on the perception of HR to the C-suites and what we need to do to change that. We need to become more technical driven. We need to become more data driven. We need to really focus on understanding what the business needs and marrying those two things together and creating robust people strategies that matter. And I thought all of that to say, like, I'm 100% with you when it comes to maximizing that. And I remember also sometime back, one of my dear friends, Ron Johnson, told me he was interviewing a friend of his, Jane White. Um, she's from Trinidad. And when she first got her leadership role at, in HR, he said she said she literally dragged her chair to the table. So if you know, yes, you know you need that seat at the table. Yes, you build your case. But sometimes you literally have to get up and drag your seat to the table. And I think that that is um, the point that we are really at right now, you know, if you are not getting that say, drag your seat over to the table and let them know that you're here and you belong and show your work. Yeah. And I, you know, I said to my clients, you can sit and wait for an invitation or you can go knock on the door and make the case for them to let you in. But when you show up, be ready. Ready. Yes. Be ready. Awesome. And stop sweating the small stuff. Like who's getting credit for work that you did? Who cares? Go on and continue to shine. And in due time, they won't be able to claim everything that you're doing. But let your work speak for you. Yes, I agree 1000% with that. With that being said, Joan Underwood, you survived your time in the sound booth today. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom. I am so looking forward to sharing this information with the audience. Guys, if you do not have a copy of that book, please go get the Manager's First Aid book. You need it in your life more than you could ever know. And I promise you that the nuggets that are shared in there are going to help you to propel your career in leadership exponentially. And you'll be thanking me after. So go get it. Go get it right now. Joan, all the best to you, my dear. And I look forward to continuing to develop our friendship and learning more from you every single day. As I from you, Julie, and you keep on doing what you're doing. You have a, an amazing platform and I salute your authenticity. I salute your passion. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in the Soundbooth today. I hope that you found this information from this episode useful. You can find me on all social media platforms at I am Julie Turney. That's I am Julie Turney. And you can find this episode or this show on most digital platforms, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it, we're there. Special thanks to Ability CBT helping me to put this content together for you and I will see you again in the next sound off.